Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. Um, we're so excited to put on our presentation regarding housing. Um, as Noah said, my name is Rochelle Jones, and I'm a staff attorney in the Housing and Appeals Unit at Volunteer Lawyers Project. And with me today is my colleague, um, Attorney Trim, and I'll let her introduce herself. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you, Rochelle. Uh, my name is Caitlin Treem, and I'm a Housing and Appeals Staff Attorney at Volunteer Lawyers Project. Uh, we really appreciate all of you being here today to get an introduction into basic eviction defense and also some ways that you could potentially get involved with Volunteer Lawyers Project and our efforts to connect members of the private bar with um, some of our indigent clients who do not have access to counsel. So we'd first like to take an opportunity to introduce you to our current housing unit at VLP. Um, again, Rochelle and I are the staff attorneys. We also work in our civil appeals clinic as well. Um, Maya Crobot is our multi-unit paralegal. Sovansela Chuop is our Gila paralegal. And Laura Castro is our paralegal in the Gila unit as well. Um, we also have the, uh, or we also have the, um, support and guidance from three really seasoned housing attorneys uh, who have been working with us on a consulting basis, attorney Dick Bauer, attorney Jeff Fior, and attorney Lee Goldstein, who provide a lot of substantive supervision to the unit, and we are very lucky to have them. So by starting off, we would like to do a brief introduction about who VLP is, the clientele that we serve, and also um, you know, what our goal is in trying to get engagement from the pro bono bar, specifically uh, in housing. So VLP, again, Volunteer Lawyers Project, we are a small staff focusing on the civil cases. Um, we focus on recruiting and training and mentoring the private bar. So unlike some of our other legal services, brothers and sisters, um, we keep a very small caseload so that way we can provide substantive training and support to pro bono attorneys who are interested in helping and assisting our clients on a myriad of things, whether it be through clinics um, or taking on full rep or limited representation cases. Um, like I said, we are always available to provide support when um, pro bono attorneys do take on cases for our clients in any capacity, whether it's, you know, one small discrete task all the way through a full representation of a case. So who do we serve? Um, all of our clients uh, are, again, specifically we work in housing, but we focus on the civil side where uh, you know clients are not guaranteed an attorney. So we work with clients who are low income. They are considered or deemed indigent based on income and asset levels. Uh, we always screen clients for eligibility uh, to make sure that they meet those guidelines. We do have a few other specific criteria that some of the other legal services or organizations do not have, but we do based on our funding source, um, LSC. And we also need to make sure that the client um, and their case meets our case priorities. In housing specifically, we focus on eviction defense. So although we understand that there are a myriad of um, conditions-based issues, affirmative cases, we are currently focusing on eviction defense, but when we do have clients with severe cases, if pro bono attorneys are interested in assisting, we do set them up so that the client can affirmatively go after their landlord to try and remedy some of the hazardous and unsanitary conditions in their apartment. So I wanted to start uh, discussing your possible value as a pro bono attorney by starting with a quote from a really important SJC decision um, that is really helps. I suggest that everybody go and look at this case. 
not only is it a helpful case, but it really breaks down what a lot of the challenges are specifically in housing um, due to the fact that most landlords are represented and most tenants are not and just the disparity and the um, the unequal access to justice in these situations. So the challenges inherent in navigating a complex and fast moving process are compounded for those individuals who face summary process eviction without the aid and expertise of an attorney. The vast majority of tenants in housing court proceed without the benefit of counsel. And in the fiscal year of 2018, 92.4 of housing court summary process defendants or tenants were unrepresented. Uh, in contrast, 70.2% of plaintiffs initiating a summary process eviction case in the housing court were represented by counsel. The result in most cases is that the landlord has an attorney who understands how to navigate the eviction process and the tenant does not. The complexity of a summary process eviction action is exacerbated by the web of applicable statutes and rules. And the various rules and statutes are not only complicated, but they are also overlapping. So deciding when to apply which of these rules and how to resolve these inconsistencies among them is therefore a formidable challenge for an unrepresented litigant seeking to comply with fast moving deadlines, especially when that litigant is also facing the stress of a potential eviction. So. Again, I really suggested everybody go read this case um, to get a really detailed understanding of some of the challenges our clients are facing and also to understand some of the rights that the housing court has put forth for tenants. So to go beyond that, for your value as a pro bono attorney, um, Having an attorney, I think, even just to guide and reassure litigants or to give voice to their issues, provide basic legal advice in advance of their hearings can really make or break the tenant's experience in housing court. Um, again, most landlords are represented, so there's a great power imbalance, a knowledge imbalance. Um, so any insight that the client can get in advance of those hearings really helps prepare them to have the confidence to be able to go in and represent themselves in these very um, high stress situations. So one thing that we will talk about later is we have an answer and discovery clinic where we help pro bono, we connect pro bono attorneys with clients to help them uh, complete their answer and their discovery documents. But the benefit of that is that the attorney can issue spot, you know, by asking interview questions and um, having a conversation with the tenant, the attorney will likely be able to point out defenses and counterclaims that a, a tenant might not even know are available to them. So the, you know, we find that to be a really important resource to help the tenants understand what rights and responsibilities they have throughout the litigation. Um, our pro bono attorneys advocate for our clients against experienced attorneys. Um, they are, when they do full rep cases or representation in court, whether it be at motion hearings or at full trials, they present evidence clearly and meaningfully, and they help low income pro se litigants that have no training or experience protect their rights in court. So we wanted to move on to some of the summary process eviction basics. Um, this is, we tried to make this as user-friendly and comprehensive as possible. However, this is definitely not all of the rules, but I thought we thought it was a good introduction. So the golden rule in Massachusetts is that a landlord may not evict a tenant without first obtaining a court order. Um, any lease that says that the landlord can evict a tenant without going to court is illegal. You know, we've had tenants come to us saying, well, our landlord said that we you didn't have to go through the court process and that we just had to leave. And that is just simply not the case. A tenancy is uh, defined as when a landlord or a property owner owns the premises and intends for the tenant to have possession of the premises for some period of time in exchange for rent. 
there are typically two types of tenancies. Um, there is a tenancy under a lease, and that is where there is a signed document that states the start and end date of the tenancy. It should also state the time frame necessary for the landlord to terminate that tenancy and also include incidences or examples of what might result in a potential lease violation and ultimately an eviction. It has to say that the rent is, or it should say that the rent is due on a specific date and the amount of rent um, and that the tenant's possession will end on a date certain. So, you know, we usually see one year leases. Um, sometimes it can be elongated or um, it could be longer than that, but typically one year. And then following that one year, um, the next type of tenancy is a tenancy at will, or what is more commonly known as a month-to-month -month tenancy. So in this case, there is no set date for the tenancy to end. It usually happens when there has been no lease or the lease that, that was in place has expired, but the landlord continues to accept rent on a month-to-month -month basis. Um, Non-payment of rent cases, typically there's a 14-day notice to quit requirement saying you need to give the tenant at least 14 days to vacate, letting them know the tenancy has been terminated. That applies in month-to-month -month tenancy at wills as well, um, but we will go over this a little bit more later, but under the CARES Act, which was enacted for in response to COVID, um, if a property is a covered dwelling, usually it means there's a federally backed mortgage or the tenancy has been subsidized um, either through HUD or some other um, subsidy program, then the tenant is, or they are required to serve the tenant with at least 30 days notice, even for a non-payment of rent case. Um, so the 30-day notice period for the other types of evictions, which are no-fault evictions and for-cause evictions, is also 30 days. Um, but in a tenancy at will, um, the difference is, is that the statute specifically says it has to be 30 days or a full rental period, whichever is longer. So if the payment terms are that the tenant will um, pay on, you know, for three months at a time, then they would need to send them a three-month notice to quit. Another um, caveat to that is that it has to terminate the tenancy on a rent day. We see many landlords serving tenants uh, at will with a notice to quit that tries to terminate the tenancy on the last day of the month, which in theory would make sense, but technically that would make the notice to quit defective because the statute specifically says that the tenancy must be terminated on a rent day. So understanding when that rent is due is extremely important to defending against the landlord's eviction. We touched upon this a little bit, but for more in depth, uh, there are three types of eviction and each of them has different rights for tenants. So the first is non-payment of rent. In this case, you know, the tenant has fallen behind and the landlord is claiming that, you know, they owe an outstanding amount of rent. Um, the tenant can raise counterclaims against the amount of rent paid. So if, let's say, there were bad conditions in the unit, they can bring that evidence to court and say to the court, you know, because these conditions existed, my landlord knew about them and didn't do anything to fix them. I don't think I should have to pay the full amount of rent. And the court will typically, if they find that those conditions did exist and the landlord was on notice, will abate the rent or make them pay a lesser amount, which can help offset the amount of rent that they owe. Um, the tenant also has the opportunity to cure, which means that there will be a certain amount of time after the notice to quit is served where the tenant can pay the entire amount of the arrearage to stop the eviction. Um, if the tenant loses in a non-payment of rent case, there is no law saying that the court should consider a stay of execution and execution occurs after the landlord has won the case, the tenant has lost a case, and it's basically the court's sign off that they can evict the tenant. Um, a stay of execution is where the 
uh, either the court decides themselves or the tenant asks for additional time before that execution is issued. Again, in non-payment of rent cases, there is no law saying that the court should consider this, but the tenant can always make that request. Cause cases. Um, cause cases occur when the tenant has a lease and they have done something that has violated a term of that lease. In a cause case, the tenant is not allowed to bring counterclaims, but can bring any of the defense, um, can bring a number of defenses. Um, a typical counterclaim, like I said before, would be, you know, bad conditions, a violation of the warranty of habitability. They wouldn't be able to bring that as a counterclaim. However, if they brought, if they had told the landlord about these conditions issues and then received a notice to quit within six months of that, the client could claim retaliation, which is a defense to a cause-based eviction. So it's kind of hard to parse through, but there are ways to still get some of those counterclaims in, just not as a typical counterclaim, but as a support of a defense. Um, again, there is no law saying that the court should consider a stay of execution, but the tenant can ask for it. Um, again, there are some affirmative defenses such as reasonable accommodation or retaliation and discrimination, which are available to the tenant. Uh, the final type of eviction is a no-fault eviction. Uh, this typically occurs when the tenant is a tenant at will. Um, the landlord has decided that they want possession of the premises back. They're not necessarily claiming that the tenant has done anything wrong, like not paying rent or, you know, violated a term of an expired lease. Um, they're just saying that they want possession. Uh, these cases can be difficult for tenants to defend against because, in theory, the landlord has a right to their property and they should be able to get that back. But it's difficult for tenants who have then, you know, lived in this property, deem it their home, and now have to find alternative housing without them having done anything. Um, the landlord in a no-fall case can still collect rent if rent is owed by um, adding the amount of past due rent uh, to the account annexed on the summons and complaint. Um, if the tenant loses a no-fault eviction, the law says that the court should actually consider a stay of execution to give the tenant time to relocate because, again, they haven't done anything to justify uh, a cause eviction or a non-payment of rent eviction. Mm -hmm. So typically that stay will be um, six months or sometimes up to a year if the tenant is disabled or there is an elderly person in the home, but it is within the judge's discretion to decide how long they will give the stay for. So terminating a tenancy. So we're now we're going to backtrack and kind of start at the very beginning of where the landlord's case begins. Um, so a landlord must properly terminate a tenancy via a written notice to quit before beginning the eviction proceedings. So this notice to quit is a document that must identify the tenants, um, the address of the premises, the termination date or the date when they're saying the tenancy will end. Uh, again, that will have to be either 14 days after the receipt of the notice to quit for non-payment of rent or 30 days for a for no fault or for cause eviction. If they're alleging that rent is unpaid, they have to include that amount. And it has to be unequivocal, the termination language. So, you know, you can't say, in a uh, cause case, you know, we're evicting you because you violated these things, you know, you can talk to us and maybe we'll consider letting you stay longer, but otherwise you have to be out in 30 days. Um, it needs to be very clear about when it ends, you know, including a date when the tenancy will end, not just saying, oh, in 30 days after receipt of this notice, because if it comes in the mail, it might not show up on a rent day or um, at another time when the tenant can really determine when that tenancy is going to end. So we touched upon this a little, but there are commonly three types of notices to quit. 
the 14 day notice to quit for non-payment. Um, some leases or subsidy programs may require more notice than 14 days, but 14 days is the typical amount. Um, and again, if the, it's a covered dwelling, so it's subsidized or has a federally backed mortgage, the landlord could be required to serve a 30 day notice to quit for non-payment as well. Uh, the typical 30-day notice to quits are for any other reason other than non-payment, so a for-cause eviction or a termination of a tenancy at will. But again, there is the exception for a tenancy at will that if the tenant pays rent in increments more than one month, then they have to provide that amount of time of notice before terminating the tenancy. Um, this is just an example of a typical 30-day notice to quit. So this is a rental period notice to quit for uh, terminating a tenancy at will. So as you see, they sent it on October 1st. They put the tenant's name and address. Uh, they're saying that they just are looking for possession of the apartment back, asking them to deliver it up at the end of the next rental period, beginning after receipt of the notice or 30 days, whichever is longer. Um, I would ask that they actually include the date when they intend for it to be terminated. Um, there's an if you uh, a notice saying that if you fail to vacate, typically it'll say this is not a you know legal doc, it's not a court document that you um, if you fail to vacate by the date listed in the notice to quit that they can pursue due course of law to evict you through the housing courts. And typically, in all cases, the um, notice to quit should inc include this reservation of the landlord's rights that states that any money is paid to the landlord after the service of the, of the notice to quit will be used as use and occupancy payments instead of as rent. Um, it In the tenant's context, it is seemingly the same thing. They're paying to occupy the unit, but legally, if there is no reservation of rights on the notice to quit saying that it'll be accepted as use and occupancy and the tenant then pays for their portion of the rent um, or their use and occupancy, it will be deemed rent and the, ten the landlord might have inadvertently created a new tenancy without meaning to. Okay, so here we have subsidized housing. So as Caitlin began with essentially the timeline of bringing the eviction case, right, that begins the notice to quit and how to terminate the tenancy. So in terminating the tenancy and also in certain areas of proceeding with the summary process, timeline, different rules apply to subsidized housing. So subsidized housing, there's a, a bunch of them in the state of Massachusetts. Um, you know, there's Section 8, which is the most popular. There's low-income housing tax credit. Um, there's public housing assistance, and there's also a lot more out there that we discover. Um, so these programs, they charge the rent based on the household income, um, which is typically 30% of the gross income. So that household income includes all adult household members who are not, who do not reach a certain age if they're not full-time in school. So your 20-year-old um, full-time college student who's working, their income is not going to be counted. But once they reach a certain age, that income will be counted. So it's the in total adult household income. Um, the, so that means that the tenants are paying their rent 30% of the income, of their income. So for example, if let's say there's a rent, their rent is 2,400 for three bedrooms. Typically in some cases, the family is paying maybe, can, you, can honestly can pay from $0 to $1,000 or more a month. And then typically a governing housing authority will pay the rest of the amount. Um, so, <clears throat> In order to go through this process, tenants have to apply and subsidize housing. They complete an annual recertification for their rent and any changes to the household composition. So that has to happen every single year. 
Um, there's interim recertifications. That's if, you know, maybe they lost their job during the year or they got a new job that pays more money or someone left out of the unit. You know, this needs to be reported to the housing authority so they can recalculate the rent and go forward. Um, it's also really important that tenants do their annual recertification because that is technically grounds for terminating the subsidy if they fail um, to recertify. Um, and typically it's for, yeah, for adequately fail failing to report their income. Um, however, again, that was just the subsidy. The landlord itself um, has to follow certain rules and properly terminating the tenancy that's actually from the home. So as I said, Section 8 evictions are, or Section 8 subsidies are the most common types. Um, so here an owner may only terminate the tenancy due to serious or repeated violations of the lease, um, violation of federal, state, or local law that imposes obligations on the tenant in connection with the occupancy or use of the unit, criminal activity or alcohol abuse or other good cause attributable to the family in the, after the first year, or I'm sorry, this is in the first year of the lease. After the first year of the lease, so during the first year of the lease, I'm sorry, the landlord cannot evict someone, for example, no fault eviction, right? If the landlord wants their property back under subsidy, um, subsidized housing, they can't do that in the first year, but after that first year, they were willing to do that. Um, and then it's also important to note that when a landlord is evicting a subsidized tenant, they also have to notify that housing authority. So back to that um, eviction timeline here. So once that either that 14 days expire or the 30 days expire, um, <clears throat> this is now where the landlord can bring the case to court. So the notice to quit is essentially just you know putting the tenant on notice that the landlord wants to um, terminate the tenancy. However, nothing has been started in the actual court proceedings. So if a tenant doesn't move out by the end of this notice period, which they're not required to, but sometimes they do, um, the landlord may file the eviction case in the district court or the housing court, essentially asking the court to get permission to remove the tenant. Um, so for the most part, a lot of our evictions, evictions are filed in housing court, but some your smaller landlords may actually file their case in district court, and that's perfectly fine. The um, law allows that, law and the rules allow that. Um, however, the tenant does have the right at any point before trial to transfer that case to housing court. Um, we'll explain a little bit more later on why that's really important, but it's just, you know, in housing court, you have the judges who are just more familiar with the rules. Um, there's more opportunities for the tenants to meet, um, maybe a lawyer for the day at a clinic, or just get more um, hands-on advice. So we always will suggest um, tenants transferring the case, and they have that right to. Um, but I also think due to this reason, most landlords do file their cases in housing court. Okay, so landlord cannot the landlord cannot um, begin the summary process right until that until that notice to quit period has expired and they begin this process by filing and serving by constable a summons and complaint. So the notice to quit doesn't have to be served by a constable but here the summons and complaint does. Um, and so again the, sum, the, the summons and complaint is a document that actually gets filed with the court and just begins that process. So the reason for the eviction must also be identified in, in, the, in the summons and complaint and has to match the notice to quit. And so you may have heard us already use this term summary process. So in Massachusetts, evictions are called summary process or SP for shortened. Um, and that, that's just what we call it here. So in Massachusetts, a tenant can win an eviction case 
um, for multitude of reasons. For example, one of the reasons is that the landlord didn't initiate the case properly, right? And that notice to quit is defective because it doesn't state the proper notice period or it doesn't state the proper reason for or give a reason for terminating the tenancy. Um, it also maybe doesn't include all household adult household members on notice to quit. Um, there's just a various reasons why that notice to quit may be defective. Um, and un if under certain circumstances, the landlord fails to uphold their duty to the tenant. Um, the tenant can win either the right to stay in the apartment, that's what we call possession of the unit or home, um, or they may win money damages from the landlord. So that summons a complaint. After the tenancy has been properly terminated by a legally sufficient notice to quit, the landlord must serve the tenant with the summons and complaint or SNC. It has, again, I think I did say this, but it has to um, be served by a sheriff or constable who's authorized by law to serve court papers. Um, summons and complaint tells you the reason for the eviction, the court where the case will be filed. So, also, this is a notice where the, the tenant will be aware whether the case is filed in district court or housing court. Um, it'll also have the date for which it will be filed in the court. So let's say it's served on the tenant on the third of the month. Um, typically that entry date is a couple of weeks after. Um, and then also we'll list if there's an attorney representing the landlord, as Caitlin described before, most times there is an um, attorney representing the landlord and it's the attorney that will fill out this document um, and also list their contact information. <clears throat> and this is just a sample of what a summons and complaint looks like. So as you can see in that top right-hand corner, that's the department or division that will say, whether it's the housing court or the district court, um, it lists all household members who are being evicted, it needs to list the correct address for which they're being evicted from. Um, prior to COVID, they did get a date and time from the court, but as we'll explain um, how the housing court has been operating since the pandemic, um, it's a little different. So it'll have the court's address, um, a name in that, in the left hand, right hand side, account annexed. That's if there's any um, rent that is outstanding. So even if it's a cause case or no fault case, if any rent is outstanding, typically they will put it in that corner. Um, and then the other side is just where the landlord's attorney will fill out. And the next page is um, the officer's return where the constable will complete his portion. <clears throat> okay, yeah. So housing court during the pandemic. So this is what mostly what how Caitlin and I have been operating since we've started post pandemic last year. Um, so before, like I said, that summons and complaint will include like the actual trial date for the tenant, um, when to appear and when they should file their answer. There, we'll explain the answer a little bit more, but the answer is essentially the tenant's response to this eviction case against them in writing that gets filed with the court. So under the housing court standing order 620, they established a two-tier system for all summary process cases. So that includes cases in the district courts as well as the housing courts. So the tier one mediation, that's that first step where the parties come to court, specifically right now in Eastern Housing Court, which covers Boston. Mediation is being held on Zoom. Um, other housing courts are looking to have mediation in person, but as of right now, at least Boston, um, mediations are still being held on Zoom. So that's the first time where the parties come together and they're with a trained um, housing court specialist or a mediator, use the words interchangeably. Um, you know, that both sides just discuss what they want, typically in the case. Um, and the next slide goes in a little more detail on that. And then that tier two trial, um, so a bench trial, cases that will be heard by a judge, and of course, a jury trial, um, the case can be heard by a jury. So maybe it may, it may surprise some people, but 
housing cases and eviction cases can be heard by a jury. Um, it's not just on the judge. In Massachusetts, the jury can hear this case. Um, and again, yeah, the, the district courts also have that two-tier system. And they just call it a case management conference, but it's technically the same mediation with the housing specialist or judge. So the answer and discovery portion, right? That's that written response that the tenant is entitled to do um, and just respond to this eviction case against them, right? We touched on earlier a little bit on just like their counterclaims and their defenses, or even if it's literally just saying, I didn't do what the landlord is alleging that I did in a notice to quit. This is their time to put that in writing. Um, we do have an answer and discovery clinic here at VLP and I will definitely be getting to that a little bit later. Um, but most importantly with this answer portion, is that it's due three business days before that first tier one mediation, right? And so let's say that first tier one mediation is on like a Tuesday. You really have to count the business days to make sure like Saturday and Sunday won't count. Um, that means the tenant has to file the answer with the court and serve it to either the opposing counsel that is representing the landlord or their landlord if landlord is pro se, meaning they're unrepresented. Um, and again, that's three business days before mediation. It's very important to do so because um, it also secures a jury demand. Um, typically in the answer, even if it's late, you just have to ask for leave of court, which is just a motion to file a late answer. But the courts, for the most part, are willing to grant the late answer. They just will not grant a late jury demand. So jury demands, um, in order to get a jury demand in, which you know has its benefits, right? One of them is just more time. It's just taking a little more time to seat a jury as opposed to a bench trial before a judge. Um, but also, you know, you have instead of one person ruling and you're ruling for or against you, you know, you'll have a panel of at least six people. Um, and so also in that answer and discovery is the discovery portion. And that's where the client can use their interrogatories where they're asking the landlord questions about any information or evidence they have, you know, that that results in that behavior that was listed on notice to quit or if it's a no fault, things like that. You can ask specific questions regarding, you know, maybe you want to see like how often the tenant contacts the landlord about conditions issues or just things like that. Um, and also a request for reproduction of documents as well. I believe the interrogatories are limited to 31 questions, but the um, documents are unlimited. And this is kind of what the form looks like. So we have um, printed forms that look like this. Some tenants I've even seen have just written up their own answer in a Word document. Um, maybe they did it with the help of an attorney or not. Um, at our clinic, we have um, this program called MADE that helps, that essentially generates a form that looks like this that we can do online with the clients. But this is typically how it looks. You know, that, that first um, fax is just like, you know, the client's name, I pay this in rent. I have a lease or I don't have a lease. Um, you know, I, I didn't do what the landlord alleged I did. Or if I did do what the landlord alleges I did, it was minor in nature and shouldn't warrant an eviction, right? Um, and then you begin to go on into the defenses. Um, and that's where we can also, in certain cases, the no fault case and non payment case, assert our counterclaims as well. And then again, the discovery. Um, this is another form that generates this first half is kind of just like the rules and instructions, and then it goes specifically into interrogatories and requests for production of documents. And again, both these documents needs to be served on um, the landlord's attorney or the landlord itself, as well as filed in court. Okay, so the mediation um, slash negotiation, because this is what happens here. So like I said, the Housing Court District Court schedule 
um, the mediations before the trial. This is again called the tier one mediation. Both parties will appear on Zoom. It is optional. Um, you can refuse to participate in mediation, but then you know it'll go to the next step, whether that's a jury trial or a bench trial. I'll also like to note here that although it is optional, um, tenants have to appear. So you can't just say, oh, it's optional and I'm choosing not to attend you know, as a tenant. You have to appear, otherwise you will be defaulted and essentially the landlord wins the case based on a default judgment, right? Just because you failed to appear. So again, although it is voluntary, you still need to um, show up. And if you need to reschedule, you definitely let the court know as well in advance as you can. Um, we've also seen where landlords, an issue we're running into is that landlords are failing to appear for mediation, even landlords who are represented by counsel. Counsel indicates they didn't get the Zoom notice in the mail or they had the wrong Zoom link, you know, all different issues that do arise that do come up. Um, I just think as attorneys, we have you know more of a due diligence than our tenants, per se tenants and landlords, but that does happen. And in some cases, the court is just rescheduling the case if the landlord fails to appear, when in actuality, if the tenant is going to be defaulted and lose the case for failing to appear, the landlord should, that, that punishment should go on the other side as well. The case should be dismissed, right? We're only here in court today because the landlord brought this case. And so them failing to appear should not automatically just have them the court reschedule a mediation where if other way around the case is dismissed or sorry, the tenant gets a default judgment. So <clears throat> I know as Kaylin had mentioned earlier, again, tenants typically are not represented during these mediations. The judge, even the Cognitive Court judges will tell you an attorney is not required at mediation, but it is strongly suggested. Um, you know, we meet clients during lawyer for the day clinic. And, you know, sometimes we are able to go into mediation with them, but not every time. We mostly, you know, try to emphasize to them that the case as well, the case does not need to be resolved at this first step. Yes, that's what the court wants, right? For just efficiency and just moving things along. They see so many cases, if they can wrap it up at this stage, great. But if wrapping it up does not give a great solution for the tenant, we strongly advise, you know, not to enter into these agreements that either want them to move out within like a short period of time that they're completely unable to do so, or an agreement for judgment that essentially just states that, hey, the landlord wins this case. And if you do any of these like 50 things, you know, we can just easily skip the trial part and just go in for an entry of judgment issuance of execution. Um, and this is, you know, it's hard for clients, especially where you have a tenant, I'm sorry, a landlord who may be represented by counsel the tenant is not, right? You have an attorney on the other end. It's a lot of pressure on you. And again, like I said, although the housing court specialists and mediators are supposed to be neutral, um, and they'll explain that in the beginning, they're neutral. They can't be called to testify by any party later on, you know, but they do, they're not as neutral as they should be, right? They kind of do, for efficiency, they would want to wrap things along. They have about another 20 mediations to um, present, preside over they want to move things along. And so sometimes they, they don't necessarily work in the best interest of the tenant. Um, but sometimes, you know, negotiations can work during mediation and the case can be dismissed or I'm sorry, dismissed or resolved at that tier one stage, which is great. Um, but it's essentially an opportunity for them, for the parties to just problem solve the case and their issues. Because again, typically we'll see the landlord is alleging something in order to quit, but then the tenant is saying, that's not what happened. It's a completely different story. And this is kind of where the parties first come together and can really just like, you know, air their grievances. Um, we strongly encourage our 
ourselves as well as our pro bono attorneys, you know, to be very vigilant in um, signing any agreements and stuff like that. Because as I mentioned before, again, with subsidized housing tenants, you risk the fact of, although the eviction case may be dismissed or resolved, you know, you risk the fact of them losing their voucher depending on the circumstances. Um, so we just wanna be really mindful of that. Okay, so here's the bench trial. So this is where a tenant, for the most part, probably failed to assert their jury demand in a timely manner, or, you know, in certain situations, they waived the right to a jury demand. I, I have not seen that in many of my cases, but I know it has happened. Tenants will secure the, the timely jury demand, but then ultimately waive it for whatever reason. Um, so the tenants can be appear before the judge without a lawyer. Again, um, you know, that's not ideal situation. You don't want to appear before a court without an attorney, but although, right, it's not a criminal case, so you're not, you're not um, entitled to one. So, however, you know, they don't need to use special language. They can just explain their case so that the judge understands the issues and facts and arguments that are important to their case. Um, so typically what we see and what we hear from tenants is that, you know, sometimes the judges aren't allowing them to fully get their case in. It is frustrating to hear, you know, tenants have to be assertive, right? The, the case, We'll, we'll start with the landlord side because, right, they brought the case. They're the plaintiff. They brought the case. We're here because they filed this case with the housing court. So they'll present their case first, any evidence they have, um, any witnesses or anything like that. Then the tenant will, get into, will then get to present their case and evidences that they may have. Um, <clears throat> they can also cross-examine cross witnesses and object to evidence, and the tenant can cross-examine as well. Of course, this is difficult for a pro se tenant, but they do have that, right? Um, and usually after a trial, the judge will take the case under advisement. They won't send, they won't make a decision right then and there. Um, they'll take it under advisement and send a written decision by mail to the parties. Um, but so yeah, it's just, it's just, it is really um, sad when a tenant does have to go in by themselves just due to capacity regarding they can't afford a lawyer or even just legal services in general or just don't have the capacity to help every single tenant at trial. That's why it is kind of important to resolve for the tenant sometimes to resolve the case at mediation. And again, it doesn't necessarily have to be in that mediation. Like I think I forgot to mention the parties can continue mediation where they go before the specialist again in a couple of weeks, like maybe they have to get more evidence or maybe they just need to sort things out or they can also do it outside of court and just mediate amongst themselves as well. So what happened if the landlord wins, right? This isn't, it's not great, but that means the tenant is losing possession of their home. Um, so after the trial, the decision gets mailed to all parties, they have 10, each party has 10 days from the date of the court's decision to appeal. Um, as Caitlin mentioned, tenants can also seek a stay of execution. <clears throat> um, and so, and that is completely discretionary. So I believe in non-payment cases, the judge like, doesn't have to allow it. In no-fall cases, the judge will typically allow a stay, but for the most part, it is within the judge's discretion. So on the 11th day, the parties do not appeal the decision or request a stay of execution. Um, the execution, I'm sorry, is prepared by the court and available for the landlord to pick up and bring to a sheriff to serve on the tenant. Um, notice, of notice of eviction, that means the tenant can be served right away after that, after that 11th, I'm sorry, on the 11th day going forward. Um, Tenants are served with a 48-hour notice, and I believe that they, they can't be served with that 48-hour notice over the weekend. But essentially, that 48-hour notice is saying we're going to levy on the execution, right? That means the tenant and all their belongings will be packed up out of the unit. 
um, when it reaches this stage, you know, we always we always advise tenants to request the stay, even if it's an emergency stay, even if that it gets tighter when the 48 hour notice has already been served, but they can still request the emergency stay. Um, and then worst case scenario, of course, it's always, you know, grab your most important documents, um, whether that's, you know, birth certificates, social security cards, things of that nature, anything related to your children. Um, you want to get that stuff so it's in your hands, it doesn't get lost. Um, once the levy date does come, the sheriff, again, can move the tenant out of the apartment with their belongings. The tenant, I'm sorry, the sheriff will store the belongings in a storage facility chosen by the landlord. However, the tenant is responsible for the payment of that storage. So this is what an execution looks like by the court, um, right? So it has the, the judge, which housing court it is. Um, and essentially, yeah, it says um, possession, damages. It'll list the judgment total, which is if it's a non-payment case or if it's not a non-payment case, it's whatever the amount the tenant owes the landlord. Um, and it'll list the address, the property address in question as well. So we have this stay of an execution, right? So again, we, we've all had, we've touched on it, but essentially that is um, an order where that means a judgment is precluded from being executed on. So that means judgment enters on the court docket. Essentially that means the tenant loses, right? Judgment for possession of the landlord. Um, and again, you have to wait that 11 to 10 days, um, that appeal period before the landlord can, you know, get issue, get the court to issue the execution. So, we always request a stay because essentially sometimes the tenant just needs more time, right? The illness eviction case is already up against them. Um, you know, in some situations they, they have a place, they just need more time or they're just not ready to move out because it's, sometimes you'll realize I'll only get the notice to quit, right? They don't have to move out at that time. Sometimes it doesn't become real to the tenant. So, you know, they always do have that right to request that stay. Um, I've, the longest I've seen, I think, has been like three months in a stay, but it can't be longer, especially if <clears throat> one is disabled or elderly. Um, so they can grant up to six months um, or up to 12 months. I haven't seen that. Um, again, this is within the judge's discretion, and this is in a no-fault case. Um, but again, the judges can, I've seen the judge grant a three-month stay in a non-payment case, but during that stay, the tenant is required to pay that use and occupancy, right? So they're not paying rent, which would kind of start a new tenancy, but they're paying use and occupancy. So it's although you lost your eviction case and you're still in the unit, you can't be, live there for free. You still have to pay the landlord something. So the landlord isn't, you know, put in a bad position. Um, again, this is all discretionary with the judges. So usually the court will allow the tenant, oh, oh sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> usually the court will allow um, the tenant less time, but the tenant can request an extension. So in that case, even if the judge allows one month, can always go back and request an extension. We always will advise to explain in that request why you need the additional time, right? And be really specific here, provide documentation if you can. Um, yeah, like I said, if, if diligence is shown and new housing has not been secured or the harm it will cause, again, that goes like to someone's disabilities or young children, things like that. So the court can consider each party's hardship. So this is the 48 hour notice. Um, again, as you know, it's from, it's from a constable's office. It's saying like on this date, you know, they, they describe the docket number, the court where it came from, you know, you're notified that on this date, at this time, you know, you have to leave. Um, 
and this is usually I've seen it like I've heard tenants say it's been like either attached to their door or like slipped under the door um but I was under the impression that it needed to be served on them but I've seen it be attached as well as slipped under okay and here's some again so we kind of touched on this but just some options after 48 hour notice right seek a stay just again, you need more time, need more time, explain why you need more time. Um, I mentioned earlier that if you if a tenant fails to appear for mediation, right, the default has been put against them, you know, they can try to get that default removed. Um, if the tenant or, not, or ask for a new hearing, if the tenant was defaulted in court or they missed a hearing um, or missed a hearing on a motion to issue execution. Um, typically we see it's lack of notice. Like, you know, the mail is not a perfect system, the mailing system, you know, things get lost, things get there late. That's typically what we see. Um, you know, the tenant should file documentation to get the default removed and ask for another hearing. In order to, to remove default, you have to have good cause for the removal, which is I didn't get a notice that I had a hearing. That's that's good cause enough. Um, and then you also had some type of meritorious defense to the eviction against you. Not that you would win, but that you have some defense that um, you'd be able to at least give get the chance to um, litigate. If levy is going forward again. That's when the 48-hour notice has been served. You know, get the most important documents and what important documents as well as medication. Um, find a place for you and your family to stay. It is hard. You know, sometimes it may be a shelter um, or a family member, or sometimes you can maybe ask the landlord themselves. Um, but typically, I feel like this is a little tough once that 48-hour notice has been issued. All right, so we are going to move on to some other um, areas that are available in the housing court for tenants, um, different resources and options. So a temporary restraining order, uh, restraining order in the housing context does not necessarily have the same meaning that we normally think of when we hear restraining order. Um, we call them TROs for short. A TRO can be filed um, in other situations. So like, for example, if the landlord um, has failed to address hazardous conditions issues in your apartment and they are not making the required repairs, you can go to the housing court and ask and seek a TRO. And basically you're asking the court instead of, you know, you can either ask the court to tell your landlord to do something or to stop doing something. So in the context of my example, you're asking the court please like order my landlord to fix these hazardous conditions in my um, in my apartment. Um, sometimes we have what we call self-help eviction where a landlord will um, illegally lock out a tenant trying to surpass the summary process eviction. Um, and if that happens, the tenant can go to court and say to the judge, you know, he's trying to, the landlord is trying to use self-help please let me back in. You know, this is a violation of my rights and they have to go through the proper channels to evict me. Um, to file a TRO, so it is a civil complaint, so the tenant would have to file a complaint detailing the situation and what the tenant wants the court to do about it. Again, please order my landlord to do or stop doing something. The tenant should bring any evidence that they would like to present to the judge in support of the TRO, which is really important, especially if it's on, on, excuse me, on, on an emergency basis. That tenant wants to be able to prove, like in the context of my example, pictures, you know, um, text messages showing notice, um, pictures showing the hazardous conditions so that the judge can really understand the position of both parties. Um, tenants, uh, a lot of our tenants use what is called an affidavit of indigency, which basically is a, an affidavit stating that the client um, receives certain public benefits or is under a certain income level and asks that the fees that would normally be associated with starting a case be waived. Um, 
if it is an emergency TRO, they will usually put the tenant in front of a judge the same day. So, you know, if in the winter the client has no heat and they have young children and it's freezing outside, they'll probably put the tenant in front of a judge right away. Um, if it's not on an emergency basis, they will schedule the hearing within a couple of days or soon after the case is filed. Um, but again, like all other court documents, the tenant does need to make sure that the ten, um, the landlord or their attorney is served with any TRO documents, especially if the judge enters a temporary order until the formal hearing on an emergency basis. Um, they always we always tell tenants you know to get a copy of the written order because again uh, whether it's on an emergency basis or it's just a general TRO they'll typically put in specific guidelines that the landlord has to follow and if the landlord fails to abide by those guidelines the client can or tenant can go back into court um, and you know show the judge you, you ordered the landlord to do these things they have refused to do them please enforce the TRO um, so that I can get some relief. Uh, rental assistance. So rental assistance has always been available, but was extremely important um, during COVID when a lot of people could not go to work. You know, they were either sick or were like did not have, you know, were unable to get proper employment. You know, jobs that were in person were now not happening or were moved remotely. Um, so I'd say one of the most uh, popular or most well-known uh, rental assistance um, uh, rental assistance types in Massachusetts is called RAFT. It's residential assistance for uh, families in transition. So uh, rental assistance is available to most tenants um, in specifically in a non-payment case, or if the tenant is trying to avoid having a non-payment case entered against them, as long as their income is below 50% of the area median income. So uh, there's an exception that it can be within 60% if there is proof of domestic violence. So um, the raft guidelines are constantly changing. Um, they're very hard to keep up with at times, but as of August of this year, households can obtain up to 12 months of assistance. That amount is capped at $10,000. Uh, for a new application submitted after July 1st, the tenants must also have a notice to quit and arrears. So, you know, a notice to quit and clear amount owed. Um, there's no requirement for a summons and complaint, but we obviously take issue with the fact that a notice to quit is required because that, you know, if that tenancy period, if that termination period expires, the landlord then can go and start a summary process eviction case. And the RAFT program, you know, I mean, they're fielding hundreds of thousands of requests, but it can take a long time, usually a lot longer than that 14 or 30 days, which puts the tenant in an extremely precarious position. And now they'll have an eviction on their record, which um, is very difficult to get impounded. For private market tenants, um, they can also give up to, so let's say they owe $7,000, they can give up to a, you know, they can get, pay the $7,000 and give up to um, stipends or a one month stipend, um, but that's included with that $10,000 cap. So once that one month is paid out after the arrearage is paid, uh, the tenant will have to start paying again and will not be eligible to receive further funds through RAFT uh, for another calendar year. Um, if the tenant's arrearage is more than $10,000, one problematic provision is that they will need to provide proof of an agreement with the landlord either or uh, or an alternative funding source. So if they were able to get $10,000 from RAFT, but additional money from another private um, uh, rental assistance fund, they need to be able to show RAFT that 
if they pay this $10,000, there is an independent contract with somebody else to cover the balance of the arrearage because the purpose of the program is to secure tenancies. So, you know, and right currently, if we have a tenant who has about $50,000 in arrearages, we clearly hope that never happens, but they would only be eligible for the $10,000, but then would need to have some sort of agreement showing that they have a plan to pay back via other arrearage and can still pay rent going forward or that they've found alternate funding. Um, one thing that we have been seeing is landlords are only willing to agree to some sort of alternative fund, um, repayment agreement if the tenant then agrees to vacate at some point. So, you know, the whole point of the program is to keep people in their homes, but it is creating kind of this problematic catch-22 where the landlord has a lot of power to deny that. And then not only will the client be denied raft funds, but they will not be able to pay whatever judgment or arrearage um, ends up on, or they end up receiving after a judgment enters in their favor, if that is the case. Um, so chapter 2257 of the acts of 2020 provided, uh, especially during, um, this was really important during COVID, that the court shall continue cases uh, when there is a COVID-related non-payment issue and an application for rental assistance pending. So that means that, you know, if a client comes to mediation, they sit down with the landlord, even if unrepresented, they say, I have a pending raft application. Um, even if the landlord's attorney was not interested in continuing the mediation and wanted it to be set to tier two, as long as the tenant could show proof that there was a pending raft application, um, then the case would be administratively continued until that payment was made by raft on behalf of the tenant. Um, also, they said that if, let's say, near the, you know, a trial happens, um, but there or you're close to the eve of trial and you still have a pending application, judgment enters for the landlord, the court cannot issue an execution until that money is repaid because it gives the tenant the opportunity to cure. Uh, the Tenancy Preservation Program, uh, we call it TPP. Uh, TPP is a homelessness prevention program, and they work with tenants that are facing eviction as a result of behavior related to disability. So I'll go into this a little further, uh, a little deeper um, it, later in the presentation, but we have a lot of clients that we assist who um, suffer from mental disabilities, um, mental health problems that can be the cause of the eviction. So there is, you know, they said so there an event occurs, um, you know, maybe a fight on the property or an inability to pay rent because they haven't been going to work because they're severely depressed. Um, as long as there is a nexus between the disability and the behavior that is the cause of the eviction, we can request a reasonable accommodation. But TPP specifically works with these tenants to try and create some sort of reasonable and effective plan that is beneficial to both the landlord and to stop the behavior of the tenant or um and to but to protect the tenant's housing. So, you know, we see TPP involved a lot in cases of hoarding where there is like an ongoing lease violation and the landlord is like I don't see how this is going to be fixed. Um they will set them up. Um they will they will uh, try and set them up with programs um, and other resources from the community that can kind of help the client in those circumstances. So they function as a neutral party to help determine whether or not this disability can be reasonably accommodated and the tenancy preserved. Um, so they have been an incredible resource for us and their main office is actually located at the Eastern Housing Court where we participate in the Lawyer for the Day program. All right, so we are going to get into some of the defenses and counterclaims in summary process eviction cases. Um, so 
just like our made form that we use for answer discovery, we like to start with some of the procedural defenses. Um, there are many cases, like Rochelle noted, that can be dismissed based on a technicality. Um, you know, a defective notice to quit, for example, where the landlord didn't terminate the tenancy property properly, the tenant can file a motion to dismiss or in the alternative, a motion for summary judgment. Um, if the case wasn't properly filed, you know, they filed a summons and complaint, but they never actually served it on the tenant. Um, the landlord also has an obligation to, again, bring the case properly. So um, if the landlord did not do that, it might also be grounds for a motion to dismiss. Um, some of the substantive defenses to eviction that are available in all the cases, so non-payment, no fault, and uh, for-cause eviction, Retaliation. Um, so an eviction is unlawful or retaliatory if the landlord brings the eviction um, or hikes rent or does something because the tenant engaged in a protected activity. Um, for example, a protected activity is asking for repairs to be com to, um, to be completed, um, filing a complaint with inspectional services, having them come and look at the property to make sure that it's up to sanitary code. If they've filed a lawsuit against the landlord or a TRO um, in any capacity, there's a presumption that it is that the eviction is retaliatory if the tenant engaged in any of these protected activities within six months of the eviction. So what that means for the tenant is that the landlord then has to prove that, no, this wasn't retaliatory. There was a legitimate reason for the eviction, and it had nothing to do with these other things. But we have had some success on clients. Uh, we had a really great case that went to the appeals court recently where the clients won on a retaliation defense. The landlord was not able to prove that it was not retaliatory. And because they won possession, the money judgment against them, which was very high, was vacated and they were not responsible um, within that action to pay those funds. And the landlord would have to seek it in a separate action. So retaliation is a very useful defense for tenants. Discrimination and reasonable accommodation. Um, so an eviction is unlawful and discriminatory if the landlord has brought an action against the tenant because of any of the protected classes. So creed, color, national origin, sex, gender identity, sexual orientation, age, ancestry, or marital status, or because the person is the, uh, a veteran or a member of the armed forces, or what we see a lot, or if the tenant is disabled. Um, we will, I will go into reasonable accommodation in the next slide, but if the client can prove that the landlord has discriminated or the tenant can prove that the landlord has discriminated against them on any of these bases, it is also a defense to the eviction. Um, so a reasonable accommodation or an RA um, is a defense that's available to tenants with a mental or physical disability. Um, they consider that to be a physical or mental impairment, which substantially limits one or more major life activities. So, you know, we have tenants all the time. We ask them, do you have any qualifying disabilities? They assume, you know, they're like, I'm not, you know, no, I, I can see, I can hear, I can stand, I can. So, you know, it's really important for us as advocates to be able to understand or explain to them that, if, you know, if you're suffering from depression or you have some other mental health problem that is making it difficult for you in, to engage in regular life activities like going to work, um, taking care of your children, keeping your apartment clean, uh, this is where we see a lot of advocacy because tenants don't know that this is available. So again, the disability must be related to the reason why the tenant couldn't meet the tenancy obligations. So we call this a nexus or the connection between the disability and the reason for the eviction. Um, a reasonable accommodation request is essentially asking the landlord to alter their rules or policies or even make physical modifications uh, to in consideration of the tenant's disability so that the tenant can stay in the unit. So 
Um, a reasonable accommodation could be requested at any time. You know, it doesn't have to be in response to an eviction. The day that a tenant moves into an apartment, they can say to the landlord, um, you know, I have uh, this, you know, this issue and I need to make a minor modification so that I can fully use and enjoy the property. Um, you know, if the tenant needs a service dog, sometimes if there's a no pet policy, they can make a reasonable accommodation. Um, the no matter who the landlord is, the landlord has an affirmative obligation to engage in what we call the interactive process, where they need to look at the uh, reasonable accommodation and determine, is it reasonable? Um, the reason the RA will not be deemed reasonable if there is some sort of undue financial or administrative burden on the landlord, um, and it does not fundamentally alter the nature of the program, um, or sorry, sorry, it will be considered reasonable if there is no undue financial burden or administrative burden, and it doesn't fundamentally alter the nature of the program. So, you know, if I have a client who is severely disabled and unable to complete an annual recertification timely, asking for additional time, potentially different resources, um, you know, saying, can we do this online instead of going in person if they have um, a, a compromised immune system, but asking them, can we just not recertify because the tenant is disabled is probably not going to be deemed reasonable. Um, again, the RA can be requested at any time from the day that the tenant moves in all the way through the date of the trial. Um, as long as that tenant is still in legal possession of the apartment, the landlord has an affirmative obligation to consider a reasonable accommodation request. So some of the common uh, defenses and counterclaims available in a no-fault or non-payment case, uh, we've touched upon this one a lot, but the breach of the warranty of habitability. So this handles, um, deals with bad conditions. So conditions of disrepair that endanger the health and safety of occupants, the tenant can claim that the value of the apartment has decreased and it's not worth the full amount of rent paid. You know, when you enter into a rental agreement, specifically one under a lease, um, you know, you're agreeing to pay whatever the landlord has deemed as reasonable for the lease based on them providing you with safe and adequate housing. So if there's anything that happens that changes that, you know, you are making the argument to the court that it is not worth what the landlord is claiming it is worth. And you would present evidence showing the various conditions issues and ask that the amount that you owe be decreased. So if a tenant has stayed up to date on their rent, but is being evicted for other reasons, a no fault, um, but they can prove, I don't owe any money to the landlord, but they owe me $10,000 in back rent because these conditions have existed for so long and they're so severe, then the tenant can win the eviction. Um, so that's really important. Um, inspectional services reports, board of health reports, you know, these things are really important. So we always suggest that when clients call in and say, I'm having, you know, I'm concerned about the conditions in my unit, that they go and they seek assistance from these agencies who can then document that. And then they can use that in the future if an eviction case is started against them or use it as evidence in the current eviction. The next is the breach of quiet enjoyment. So quiet enjoyment is, um, or a breach of quiet enjoyment occurs when there is an interference with the tenant's use and enjoyment of the apartment. Um, a tenant can sue for money damages or, um, which is actual damages or three times the rent, whichever is more. So let's, you know, I had a, a case recently where my client had been dealing with terrible conditions, issues in the apartment. You know, we were saying that that is breaching her quiet enjoyment because she can't use sections of her apartment because it is, you know, there's mice and cockroaches and things that can't, she makes the apartment unlivable. Um, but at one point, you know, she had, a, there was a serious leak in the building and there was a ton of water damage and she lost a lot of property. And so, you know, 
by calculating how much that was worth, she could get up to three times the rent or whatever those actual damages are, whichever is more. Um, violation of the security deposit law. Uh, Massachusetts has a very strict uh, per se law that um, requires landlords to carefully handle tenant security deposits. So you have to provide, um, you know, the tenant with a document explaining the condition of the unit that both parties need to sign. They need to put the uh, security deposit in a separate interest-bearing account. They need to annually report the amount of interest that that security deposit has accrued. So you know, it's not usually a lot, but even if it's only a dollar or two and the landlord has not given you that accounting or given paid you that uh, interest or credited towards your rent, they will be in violation of the security deposit law. Um, there's also a last month's rent law that is very similar, but it doesn't require necessarily that it be in a separate account, or I'm sorry, that it uh, there be an accounting. Um, landlords, so the next is um, 93A, this is unfair and deceptive practices. So landlords are barred from threatening, attempting, or actually using any unfair or deceptive acts against tenants if the owner is in the trade or commerce of renting. So it only applies to landlords who are in the business of being a landlord, meaning that it does not apply to two-family owner-occupied. You know, if the person is living in one of the apartments in the unit and is simply renting out the other apartment so that they can make their own mortgage, again, three-family owner, uh, three owner-occupied, and the rent, again, is primarily used to pay all of the bills, the maintenance, and the mortgage mortgage, nonprofit housing providers, and also housing authorities. So, you know, we typically see this where, um, you know, large landlords um, that are accepting Section 8 vouchers or have Section 8 mm -hmm. subsidies, they're still um, liable under 93A because they are in the business of renting to people. And therefore, they should, you know, if they're going to be engaging in this type of commerce, they should be held to the same standards as other uh, business owners. So. For four cause evictions, again, you cannot bring counterclaims necessarily in a, a cause eviction, but you can bring defenses. So uh, aside from the defenses that we talked about previously that are available to, in all cases, um, some of the other substantive defenses are, you know, I didn't do it or I didn't materially breach my lease. So in a fault-based eviction, a tenant can defeat the eviction by convincing the court that the tenant did not commit the alleged lease violation or that it was relatively minor. You know, a material breach of the lease um, is, it says that you cannot have any, you know, um, federally illegal substances or you cannot have uh, firearms or other, you know, other criminal activity on the premises. If they find those, then yeah, I'd say that that's relatively material. You know, it's always arguable. But if the tenant was like, it says that the tenant will pay their rent on time and the tenant has been late on paying their rent a couple months throughout the tenancy, you know, I don't, we would argue that that is not material. You know, that is something that has been remedied and it's a slight delay and it shouldn't deprive the tenant of their housing. Um, again, reasonable accommodation, uh, as long as there's a nexus or connection between the tenant's disability and the reason for the eviction, meaning that the tenant has a disability-related defense, uh, they can request a reasonable accommodation. And, you know, we do see this a lot, especially, like I said, in the four-cause eviction cases, the tenant's behavior is clearly tied to their disability. They've We've requested a reasonable accommodation saying, please excuse the um, you know, if we can show you that the tenant has engaged in counseling or has sought other resources that will curb that behavior in the future, landlords sometimes will be willing to enter into agreements with us that say that as long as the tenant does not engage in the same type of behavior um, for a certain period of time, they will have their tenancy reinstated. 
This is especially important when they're subsidized tenancies. Um, and then just avoidance of forfeiture, you know, based on the principles of equity and fairness, the tenant shouldn't lose their apartment. And if there's some solution short of um, eviction that's fair to both sides, then they should go that route. So, you know, if the, let's say the, um, a tenant has, uh, you know, loves to play music, um, their work shift is during the day or sorry, at night. So, you know, they're playing music all day and somebody's home and they're working and, you know, they're breaching their other, um, neighbors, quiet enjoyment, just saying to them, I'm sorry. And I didn't realize, and I will stop doing that, right. Trying to come to some sort of solution. You shouldn't lose your housing over something that is easily, uh, remedial. So this um, brings us to the portion of how to get involved. Um, I first want to start with, I know Kayla had mentioned earlier that, you know, at Volunteer Lawyers Project, what makes us different than our other legal service um, agencies is that, you know, we really try to engage our private bar attorneys, whether that's attorneys from law firms, um, solo practitioners, or just any other type of um, you know, practicing attorney or retired um, attorneys as well, we try to really engage with them and you know, have them help us during our clinics or take on cases in a limited or full capacity, which I will explain um, with the support of you know, myself and Caitlin as a staff attorneys in the housing unit, um, as well as our consulting supervising attorneys. Um, so that's our push here and I know and I hope that, you know, us explaining just the basics of housing um, really gets you guys wanting and wanting to get involved and to help our tenants, because most importantly, if it's one thing you take away from this training is just that, you know, tenants are just underrepresented in housing court. And it is really unfortunate because in some situations and majority of the situations, they don't, deserve to lose, they don't deserve to lose their housing, right? Or they lose their housing because they just couldn't, you know, articulate, you know, their defenses or why landlord is doing something wrong. So I think this is where we really try to push for our volunteers to come on and help. You know, unfortunately, you know, Caitlin and I can't represent every tenant as much as we'd like to. We don't have the capacity to do so. So we really strongly encourage our volunteers to get involved. But again, we're not throwing you out to the wolves. You'll have our support every step of the way, as much or as little as you want. So for housing unit, we have our lawyer for the day unit as lawyer for the day clinic, which is actually in person um, in the Eastern housing court. So again, that's just like in Boston, that's at 24 New Chardon Street. Um, so we operate there on Tuesdays. And then answer a discovery clinic, this is where we help the tenants write the filing of their answer, discovery requests, and jury demands. Um, it says before the deadline, but we also assist when the answer discovery is late. We will do that motion for late answer, we'll follow with the court, serve it on opposing counsel, or mail it to the landlord if they're unrepresented. And so again, the uh, limited and full representation is maybe you meet a client at one of our clinics, or you know you just want to get involved. You know we have cases that can take on some representation. It can be limited, in the sense that you know you just represent the client at that first tier one mediation, um, or continued mediations if there is one in that case, or full representation, meaning anything that happens in that case, you're on it, you're with the client, um, and that's your case. So now I'll kind of go into each of them like specifically. So again, at the Eastern Housing Court, Tuesday mornings, um, we do nine to 12 and 12 to four. So specifically that is the first and third Tuesday of the month. Uh, I know some months have more than um, four Tuesdays, but again, specifically first and third, we will be there. 
Um, we'll be there with our paralegals to do our intakes and screen for eligibility, as well as our interns and our supervising attorney. So everyone's there. Um, it's a great place to meet. You can meet us face-to-face, -face, meet clients face-to-face, -face, um, assist them with drafting, it could be just something brief drafting, um, go into mediation with them, as well as a motion hearing. Typically, we usually see like a motion to reconsider is on. So I mean, the decision was already made by the judge, but here the client wants to, you know, present their case again, and it helps. I've done that. I've gone in on a reconsideration and actually got the judge to change his mind. And, you know, part of it's like great for the client. That was really great, you know, and good advocacy on my part, but also the way the client described the case to me, she already told the judge everything. But I guess hearing it from an attorney, it makes it a little better. It's really sad and unfortunate, but unfortunately that's just how housing court is operating. So you'll get an opportunity to do something like that. And, you know, it's just a couple, um, and it's not gonna take your whole day, right? It's gonna take a part of your day. And it's just a great opportunity to meet tenants or it's just advising, just giving advice. Like, this is this, this is what you should do. This is what you need to file. Um, so who you should speak with, or maybe connecting them with some of the referral um, agencies that Kayla mentioned, like TPP, because again, TPP is in the housing court. Um, so things like that, you know, will be there as well. Or you can just shadow, um, when the attorney's giving advice or on the downtime, you can literally just go into the courtroom and just witness um, housing cases. Um, and again, like I said, we're there to supervise, mentor and assist in any way we can. Um, we were doing virtual um, lawyer for the day. And honestly, sometimes we still kind of do, even though we're in person. So we're in person, it may be a little slow in person, we'll get a call from um, one of the housing specialists or they'll come upstairs and just say, hey, I have this client on Zoom. Because remember the mediations are all on Zoom. Um, so they'll ask if we can join in. They do have a computer available if no pro se litigant needs it. Um, but we also have our, um, sorry, not a laptop, but our tablets. Tablets, <laughs> tablets that you could also use and go on video with. Um, so, you know, you can duck away into a, um, corner office or corner room in the court and you can still help with um, mediation on Zoom or just speaking, providing advice. Um, and then also just pop back up and come and help with clients in person as well. Okay, so yeah, so the limited assistance representation. So we just LAR, that's mostly what you're gonna hear, but that's what it means. Um, so in 2010, the housing court issued a standing order, um, essentially which implemented the use of LAR within the divisions of the housing court. So that's like, I know we said we offer the Eastern housing court, but it's also the Northeast, Metro South and Southeast, all of those other places across the state. Um, so LAR permits a qualified attorney to assist a self-represented litigant on a limited basis without undertaking, right, the full representation. So that just means, and on that form, um, sorry, there's, there's a training manual an online training that you have to take in order to provide LAR assistance. Um, there's also a form that you sign um, with the client, you and the client sign it essentially as your states that I'm representing you at this motion hearing on this date or TBD if it hasn't been determined as yet. Um, then also once that date or that um, service has been completed, you have to file a notice of withdrawal of your limited representation with the court. Um, that just puts the court on notice that, hey, I'm done, I'm stepping out of this case. You can always redo another one as well, of course, um, but it's really important that if you are only have the capacity to represent the tenant on a limited basis that you do withdraw your limited representation so the court doesn't drag you into um, other proceedings if the case continues on. 
so yeah, so there is a course. Um, so the housing course is a self-certifying course and you don't need to present the certification in court. You do have to take it, um, you know, by submitting the LAR notice of appearance, you're letting the court know that you are in fact LAR certified. Um, you can represent the client in mediation or another court event, like I said, the lawyer for the day. Um, and again, that's the same thing. Also send the, send the LAR, right? Like anything you file in court, um, I feel like litigators know this, but anything they file in court, right? You give a copy to the client and you have to give it to the other side, whether that's the attorney on the other side or the landlord on the other side, you have to do that. And the same goes for the withdrawal. And so our next clinic that we have is the Answer and Discovery Clinic or A&D. So this is completely virtual. Right now it is on Thursdays. Um, this is run, so this clinic is run entirely by us, um, BLP, Caitlin and I, as well as our, well, our paralegals run this clinic mostly. So our paralegals and Caitlin and I supervise, we have um, a lot of signups. Our volunteer attorneys can sign up and take a session. We usually do the shifts um, in two hour increments. So that's like either 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. or 11 a.m. to 1 p.m., you know, whatever your preference is. And, you know, again, this is where the tenants are essentially responding to this action against them in writing. So we assist them with drafting. You know, you, you can start with, you know, just hearing the tenant side. Prior to the clinic, you will receive the tenant's documents. That's that notice to quit, the summons a complaint, other training materials, um, and any other like, you know, FAQs that may be pertinent to that day. Um, you'll get a form or information on how to use the MAID tool. That's at Massachusetts Defense for Eviction. Um, GBLS created this during the pandemic. Um, so you'll get, you know, you can look at that beforehand. It's fairly um, easy to use. It also was created for pro se tenants as well. But, you know, during our clinic, we will work with the tenants in completing that. Um, so you'll have that time to, you'll have the time beforehand to review the materials and ask the, you'll have the um, contact information for the housing attorneys as well as the paralegals to ask any of your questions or you can ask them day of prior to the tenant joining. And then once the tenant joins, you know, we will introduce you to the tenant, you get acclimated with them. They'll tell you their side, right? Because a notice to quit and the summons a complaint, you know, once you start volunteering, you'll see it doesn't say anything. It really does not say much. As though we went into detail on what it should say and what should happen, in reality, it, it could be a two sentence notice to quit, right? It doesn't tell you anything about the case. And then you have the tenant in front of you and they're going to want to talk, which is great. Like, you know, you can let them explain, but also, you know, feel free to let them know that, you know, we do have this two hour block to complete the forms um, and things like that. And so the, the way the main form brings you, it starts off with like your procedural and technical defenses and also the basic information from the client. And then it gets into like the substantive defenses. That's where the client can really tell their side of the story. Once the form is complete, you can kind of like print it or download it as a word copy and you can fill in as well. We can, you know, be a little more specific there. Um, with the tenant's side of things and their facts. Um, we will also, so the attorneys will send this to the client via Pandadocs. It's just an electronic signature system that we use so the client can review it on their own, sign it. We do strongly encourage um, that the deadline is pressing. Again, that's at three business days before that first court event, the, the turnaround is a little, a little quicker. Maybe we ask the permission of the client to sign. At the bottom of the form, it will say prepared with assistance of counsel just so the court knows that the tenant didn't do this on their own, you know, assistance with assistance of counsel, but no appearance was entered. Um, and so yeah, it's just a great opportunity just to work with clients face-to-face. -face. And then again, you'll have the staff attorneys there to provide any advice or any, maybe do some research in the background, just anything that we can do to help assist. Cause it's really great that um, 
you know, our volunteers can work with our clients in doing this. I will say the Answer and Discovery Clinic is one of my favorite things to participate in and watch because I have had some cases where I read the notice to quit and the summons and complaint and I'm like, you know, this poor tenant does not have a chance here. You know, this allegations are so serious. You know, it's just, it seems like it's going to be really difficult for them to defend. And then you sit down and you talk with the tenant and it is mind blowing how different, you know, it's the tenant, it, the, you're basing everything off of what the landlord is saying. So the answer isn't such a great opportunity for the tenant to be able to set the record straight, put forth their defenses. And then like Rochelle said, it creates this beautiful form that then they can bring into court and it lays out, retaliation it's this statute you know this is what i have to prove um and it really just does change the entire tone of the case really um so here's how to join us for our answer and discovery clinic we have an online sign-in sheet again that's the 9 a.m or 11 a.m slot um where you can sign up you can also shadow that's we actually strongly encourage um, although the form is very easy to use, again, pro se litigants can, so attorneys can definitely get the hang of it without shadowing. But, you know, if you have the time or opportunity to, shadowing is always great as well. Um, you know, it's not a walk-in clinic. We schedule our clinics, our clients beforehand. Um, you know, right now we do have, like, our, we're kind of limiting our A&D clients just because either we're not, clients aren't, aren't aware of our clinic or things like that. You know, we have put out to other legal aid organizations like, hey, you know, we have this clinic, please let um, clients know. And when you come across, we can do this form, we can do the serving and filing, um, just make it a lot easier. So we have, you know, put a notice on that. Also letting the court know, um, but I don't know if it's, it's, it's just unfortunate. It's a little, we're not getting as many clients right now, but technically we still are, and there's always someone to help. Um, again, it's the two hour shifts. It's the comfort of your office or home um because it's done on zoom we'll give you the zoom link and all the materials beforehand so you can review um there was another point i wanted to make about the answer and discovery that now i'm just drawing a blank um but similar to what you were saying caitlin just like oh here's a good point i'm sorry here so the notice to quit like i said and like caitlin said it's right you may think oh my like some of it's like you see like the craziest things it's like you broke this window. You had unauthorized guests doing this. You you cursed at management. You your child, you know, maybe sexually assaulted another tenant. Like you have all these different things going on, and then you see it. It's like wow, this. How can we help them? I hope we can, you know, we can help some way. Um, but then you hear from the tenant. It's like that didn't happen, right? And I, I get it. It's two sides, right? Three sides to every story. So. And also with that, with that being said, the landlord can allege, they can allege almost anything in notice to quit, but they need to be able to prove that in court, right? And typically when we get to mediation stage or even past that, that's when we realize these like landlords, they don't have the evidence. Okay, the tenant broke something. You never contacted the tenant to let them know they damaged something or have them pay for it. Like none of that. Or like Kayla said before, we they just have legitimate like defenses. Well, that's a reasonable accommodation defense to something, you know, that they only acted out in this behavior because, you know, maybe they stopped seeing their therapist or stopped taking medication, things like that, you know, just little changes. It's just the notice to quit and summons to complaint can only provide so much. And so during this answer discovery clinic, it's just a great way to be ahead of, um, to be ahead of the game and understanding the tenant's case, which actually brings me to the next slide, um, our limited and full representation, right? So, Completing, and it's really tough, right? Because completing the answer and discovery, that's the first time the tenant is in front of an attorney and it's like, I'm gonna tell them everything. I want, can you do this? And you know, 
we do let them know beforehand that, right, we're doing this as an elder in LAR. Um, you know, that means our retainer, our representation is limited to the clinic because we don't have the capacity to help outside. But when we have our volunteers at Intern Discovery Clinic, you know, we would never ask you in front of the tenant, you know, if you're willing to take on the case, but, you know, you could always feel free to volunteer yourself or, you know, we may talk to you after and closing if the case is something you'd want, you know, to take on further. And again, it could just be that first tier one mediation or even before mediation, maybe you'd want to speak with um, the other attorney on the other side, just maybe parties can come up with an agreement or dismissal of the case or negotiate something. Maybe the tenant actually does want to vacate. Um, they just need more time or need, you know, need to get the money to be able to move, things like that. And so we really strongly encourage our volunteers to take it beyond um, our AD and LFD just because, you know, the need is definitely there. It's always going to be there. I'm sure it was there prior to the pandemic and now even more so. Um, you know, like I, we, we met with actually the housing court specialist um, a couple of weeks ago and, you know, they informed us like, there's like, what, like hundreds of eviction cases being filed in housing court, like on a weekly basis, right? And so majority of that is represented landlords, but it's all pro se tenants and we just need the help. And it's just really difficult because legal, legal services, we can't do everything, unfortunately. Um, and then again, full representation cases, you can definitely take those on. We have those as well. We have we also have affirmative cases that our pro bono attorneys are currently assisting with. You know, some cases it's maybe it was a non-payment case due to the due to those conditions, right? The client, the tenant withheld rent due to conditions, and then you know, luckily, fortunately, they eventually left. I had one case where the tenant did move out, but then you know the conditions were just so horrendous in that first unit that you know we transferred the case to the civil docket, and the pro bono attorney is now representing the tenant in an affirmative case, right? Due to all these conditions, breach of warranty of habitability, breach of quiet enjoyment, like you owe this tenant some damages for the emotional distress they suffered, um, which can be, you know, exhibited either through in different ways, physical or mental symptoms. But so that's just another opportunity to take on cases. But again, it's definitely at your comfort level. Um, we have more trainings outside of this one that we can um, help you with. And then with housing, I don't say this to scare you, say this to hopefully intrigue you. You know, it's not, although every eviction case does begin the same way, right? Notice to quit something to complaint. They're all very different, very different. Even if it's the same landlord on the other side, um, it's all very different and very interesting. And so I hope that, you know, we sold it enough to you guys. And especially if you're interested in litigation, you can get in front of the court and get in front of the judge, argue motions, um, and just, you know, just essentially just advocate for these tenants. So we really, really strongly encourage you guys to join in. I'm also going to selfishly plug that VLP also has uh, the only civil appeals clinic in Massachusetts um, where we help clients by providing information and advice on appeals. We see a majority housing cases, but there is also the opportunity for family law, um, uh, appeals of 209A harassment prevention orders, um, but it's a really great opportunity to help the clients get their initial documents filed, but we also have many, many pro bono attorneys who take on those cases full rep for our clients. So if that interests you, we suggest that you check that out as well. I'll also just answer this question that came in the chat. Are there opportunities for current law students slash non-attorneys to help? I did make, didn't mean to mention that. Yes, there is. Um, same thing at the clinics or during our answer and discovery clinic. Um, lawyer for the day answer discovery. So if you're 303 certified, so usually you're either enrolled currently in evidence or in your last year of law school, you can actually represent um, tenants during mediation. 
Because um, I mean, during, to represent a during mediation, you do not have to be an attorney. So you can do that. In terms of arguing motions before the court, you definitely have to be 303 certified. Um, and again, you'll just be working under one of our supervising attorneys or one of us, um, but you have to be 303 certified to argue in court, but to attend our lawyer for the day clinic, no, we have our interns who are law student interns as well as undergrad interns who join us all the time. You know, they can help with help our paralegals with intakes or eligibility. You know, it's a very, seems very basic, but it's actually very important to our mission and things like that. So you can definitely assist there, shadow, um, help with advice, help with just basic drafting of things as well. Um, so we definitely encourage current law students and non-attorneys to help. Um, you know, we are the volunteer lawyers project, but in that it's also just volunteers. You don't have to be an attorney, but so anyone is um, strongly welcomed. Yeah, and our answer and discovery clinic, um, if you are not 303 certified, but you're interested in assisting, um, you still can assist the tenant. It would just be under our supervision. So normally where we would go into a private breakout room and give the attorney and the client, you know, time privately to discuss the case, really let the pro bono attorney take the reins. We're there for support if necessary. Um, but we do typically like to give them that privacy and space. Um, if you are not an attorney or you're not through three certified, you can still assist at the clinic, but we would be physically in the breakout room with you. And that way we can answer any questions and just make sure that, you know, you are following um, the correct legal principles and it's, et cetera. Does anyone else have any questions? I think we have a couple in the chat. Rochelle, do you mind just, I know we're at time, so yeah. I wanna be. I did answer a couple of them, but I wanted to circle back to, um, we had a question regarding, you know, this, I know this is like one of your favorite topics. Um, can a landlord, you know, choose not to engage in the RAF process? And right, I said, technically they can and they do but it could be seen as income discrimination. Um, yeah. I'll just touch on that one. Yeah. So we are actually taking an appeal right now of a case where this is the issue. Um, what there is like clear guidance from DHCD, who is the administrating agency who gives out the raft funds. Um, and I think it's an attorney general's letter that clearly says that, you know, if the landlord denies raft, then it is income source discrimination. And there's some case law um, that implies that the tenant shouldn't be responsible for paying that arrearage if they tried to, and the landlord said no, but we have been less successful on that recently. Um, but one of the things that we have seen the courts doing recently, I mean, they're fighting about this, which is really hard because different tenants are getting uh, different treatment. Um, what I have seen is that if the landlord agrees to accept raft and then um, they realize, just kidding, you know, because if they accept the raft, the tenant will be able to cure, hopefully, and they won't be able to evict them. So if the landlord says, yes, I will engage, um, but then ultimately, once the money is paid out or they have the, the, the award letter has been sent, they say, no, just kidding. I don't want this anymore. I just want the tenant to leave. Well, it's too late. The judge will make them to accept that payment and will essentially say, you know, once you've been paid these funds, um, if the tenant then again falls behind, you can issue another notice to quit. But as far as this this case is concerned, the money has been paid and this case is dismissed. Um, it's a little more tricky when the tenant is like, you know, has always paid on time 
has now found themselves in a difficult situation can have their arrearage covered by raft and they ask the landlord to engage and they either are non-responsive or they allow the um, application they get sent a request for specific documents and if that then um, if they don't respond on time and the application is closed there's really nothing that the tenant can do but you know I've had many tenants who were eligible for a lot more money before this new payment standard was put into place who had active applications they were being proactive about paying their rearage and the landlord did not cooperate and then they had to file a new application past the new deadline and lost out on tens of thousands of dollars that was available during COVID so like all good legal questions, the answer is it depends, um, but we are hoping that we can get some more guidance um, from the appeals court or the SJC eventually on what the terms of RAFT are and what the landlord has to abide by. Yes, particularly where, right, it's a non-payment case. I actually have a repeat client now, um, you know, who's, you know, being evicted for non-payment. He's tried multiple times to apply for RAFT and landlord is just refusing because like, you know, as the question says, do they, the landlord has to provide, people don't, people don't know the landlord has to provide the owner documents. So when we say the rental assistance and wrapped, that money goes directly to the landlord. It doesn't go to the tenant. Landlords get paid directly through wrapped, like really direct deposited or maybe a check, but they get it directly. So they have to provide like proof of ownership, a W-9, um, how much the tenant's rent is, what, are they, what is owed, you know, and so in that case, it's just like if you're, you know, you're indicating that your tenant owes me this money, but I want him out, you know, it's it's like cash money too. The tenant is trying to pay you back, right? And the tenant wants to be out too, just needs more time. But I, for a non-payment case, it just it's just baffling to me. Um, I can see in like a cause case where the tenant may owe rent and there's a, well, I don't want your money. I just want you out, right? Your cause doesn't effectively change anything. Yeah. Right, but in a non-payment case, it's just, it's not adding up. And as Kaylin said, it's unclear with the, how the courts are operating. Um, so it's just really unfortunate. It is, there's another question in the chat. Um, I was trying to, maybe I may be incorrect in um, misphrasing this, but essentially it looks like a, a, a summons and complaint was filed in the district court, um, but there was no attestation form which has to accompany um, non-payment of rent cases. And so, but this case was not for non-payment of rent. It says it was, it says it was for possession. I'm not sure if that means it was for a no-fault case. And so if it's a no-fault case and it doesn't need that form, um, if that's the case, then I'm sorry. I, I mean, I would say you would just need to explain to the court or maybe the notice to quit isn't entirely too clear that it's not a non-payment case because the, the court shouldn't be, um, rejecting a no-fault case for failure to provide that form. Yeah, if I'm understanding it correctly, I mean, there are certain things that the court, especially um, since COVID and in some of the standing orders has said that they have to include, right? You need to, if it's a non-payment case, have a reservation of, um, um, I'm sorry, a cure language that explain the opportunity to cure. Um, if it's subsidized, it has to say that if you are a victim of domestic violence, that you, um, you know, potentially have a defense to the eviction. You know, if you're disabled, you should request reasonable accommodation. Um, there are certain things that the court requires that it be included. Um, we don't see the court taking that necessarily as seriously as other types of term, like viol um, other defects in the notice to quit. So, you know, I was at the answer and discovery clinic today and we had a client who not only had the wrong address listed, 
but he had nothing. It was just very simple form that just said, we would like you to end this, you know, we're terminating your tenancy on this day. It didn't have a reservation of rights. It didn't have any of the required attestation or any of the other language about cure. Um, and the client filed a motion to dismiss saying that, you know, this was my wrong address. Um, not really, again, understanding until he came to our clinic what the other grounds were for the improper notice to quit. But the court was like, oh, well, that's a, an issue to be dealt with at trial. I don't necessarily agree, but they're looking for clear defects that would confuse the tenant as far as, you know, when their tenancy is ending, if it has contradictory language, it's like, we want you out and you have to be out by this day, um, if it's a cause case, but, you know, maybe we'll consider reinstating it if you do X, Y, and Z, you know, it needs to be clear and unambiguous, so. Yeah, that may just have to be refiled, that's unclear, or sometimes filing in the housing court where they're more aware of the rules and things like that may help. Yeah. Any other questions in the chat? There's no other questions in the chat, um, but if someone okay. wants to mute and ask a question or you can continue to drop questions in the chat. I do realize it is 437, so we I apologize that we've gone over a little bit. But um, you know, Rochelle and I do want to let you all know that if you have any questions or if you're interested in, in engaging with BLP, either through volunteering or just generally asking housing questions, we are happy to communicate with you. Um, our emails were at the beginning of this presentation, um, but I think they're also potentially listed on the BBA website in connection to this. Um, but you can find us at uh, volunteer um, at the volunteer lawyers project uh, website or um, you know feel free to contact us we're happy to continue this conversation and answer any questions that you might have <laughs>